is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Well, welcome to episode seven of Transitional Matters, where we talk about trends, mega trends, and transitions all around the world. Today, I'm joined by Hassan Malik, uh, an investor with, well, I'm just going to say tons of experience. We'll dive into kind of uh, Hassan's background, I know, but it's Hassan's knowledge around the largest default in sovereign history, which of course belongs to Russia just over 100 years ago. That is why we kind of got Hassan on and going to be the focus of our, our conversation today. Now, with everything going on in the geopolitical space, I, I don't think there's a better time to be talking about this. There's a, a lot of uh, interest suddenly uh, being found in the Russian space. So I think I speak for everyone when I say thanks for sharing your time and your expertise, Hassan. Now, alongside your experience as an investor, you also wrote the book, Bankers and Bolsheviks, International Finance and the Russian Revolution. I think that was 2018. Before we dive into this fascinating topic, can I just get you to paint a bit of a picture here of your background, how you came to this topic, what you do now, and kind of some of the experience that you've built up over the years? Sure. So first of all, Chris, thanks for having me. It's very kind of you to have me on the show. In terms of my background, I guess I got into history and economics uh, very early on. I developed an interest in the subject, just living in many developing countries in various parts of the world and becoming very curious of why certain countries climb the development ladder so well and others fail to do so. And so that led to my interest in history, which took form in a degree in, in undergraduate years. I cut my teeth on Wall Street at JP Morgan looking at commodity-related equities and really having picked up Russian in college and sensing something was happening in the commodity markets in the mid-2000s took a bit of a risk and cold called a bunch of banks in Moscow and found a seat, one of the larger brokerages there, pitching Russian stocks to investors in Scandinavia and Britain. And that kind of developed that interest in obviously Russian markets, but also what the past of the Russian markets was. So it was during that time that I started my PhD research at Harvard in conversations with my supervisor, started to learn about this past Russian investment boom, which came to a spectacular bust in 1917, 1918. So after having finished the book research and sort of putting the book in publication, I was working back in the private sector in a few research-related roles, worked at a hedge fund, and ultimately last year joined Luma Sales, where I sit on the centralized macro team, doing a mix of sovereign analysis in emerging markets and global macro thematic research. So basically everything. <laughs> at some time, you've sat on every desk. <laughs> That's superb. Yeah. What drew you to pick up Russian in college, did you say you... It was an elective. I was uh, born in Pakistan, so grew up speaking Urdu and Hindi and spent much of my childhood in Latin America, so spoke Spanish. And I was very interested in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union because it seemed to, A, have a very interesting and dramatic history. 
but also be at the intersection of so many different cultures and religions and ethnicities. And yet it was so remote from my own lived experience in Latin America and, and Southeast Asia. And so it was that kind of interest in the history that led to the language and then opened up the world of Russian literature, which, as you know, is one of the great uh, treasures of the world. Well, I'm going to keep you on this point because this, I think, segues really nicely because the period we're talking about here, I think you said 1917, 1918, when it all went pop. I mean, there's so much going on in the world at this point, isn't there? Could you just outline some of the things going on? Because it's it's very strange that I think this part of history, certainly the Russian kind of influence and role is often not talked about as much in world history. Yeah, you're very right. I mean, the historians, economic historians often talk about this period of the late 19th and early 20th century as the first modern age of globalization. And it has very, very strong parallels to our times today. It was a time of huge amounts of uh, cross-border flows of goods and capital and people, uh, arguably more labor mobility back then than even today. And it took place after a series of events in the 19th century. You had uh, British industrialization, repeal of the corn laws in the 1840s that saw British domestic markets open up to international commodity trades, particularly from agricultural producing countries, that sparked one of Russia's first export industries uh, from the Rus southern Russia and Ukraine, the, the wheat exports that we talk about today in the context of the, the ongoing crisis. You had the invention of railroads, the telegraph, the spread of these technologies. And Russia was very much a beneficiary of these technological shocks. And as these shocks opened up the Russian economy and connected it more and more with the world, it sparked a real shift in Russian policymaking domestically to try and industrialize the country and ultimately through that engage more with the foreign markets. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating, isn't it? You've mentioned there like a number of different innovations. So I would kind of label these like innovation waves. We're coming on to that transition period of global powers as well in the West, aren't we? Britain kind of led the way through the steam engine, the locomotive, and was was leading the way in steel manufacturing. And then kind of, I'm just going to say we got complacent. And we saw that increase in Germany and the US. So was Russia a beneficiary from that commodity trade, that need for steel? Was that one of, you mentioned wheat, but was it also things like st uh, kind of iron ore and things like that that was coming from that? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of 1840s was uh, a story of agricultural commodity exports. But by the 1870s, you have actually British entrepreneurs coming to exactly the parts of the former Russian Empire that are battle zones right now. I mean, we're talking about the Donbas in modern day, in today's Ukraine. These were the sites of an enormous amount of foreign investor and entrepreneurial activity. The city of Donetsk basically has its origins in a British industrial project to develop the metallurgical industry there. And in fact, you will see in, in discussions about today's crisis so much about the Russian speaking population of Ukraine. A lot of these Russian speakers came to Ukraine during this period when there was a huge amount of foreign investment in the heavy industry of that area, creating economic opportunities for peasants from Russia proper and sort of attracting them to these new industrial belts. When we're talking about kind of this, and I'm going to pull up something from your book, this kind of struck me. 
the fact that you pull out here that Russia at this point in time had become the largest net international borrower in the world. It was a big economy and a big nation, but that's huge. <laughs> um, and I think the reason that it struck me was, was while Russia was this great nation, I think I'm also right in saying it, it was one of the poorest great nations. It wasn't a wealthy nation in a kind of a per capita basis. Yeah, I mean, so Russia was, as today, again, so many strong parallels. It was in many ways a great power of Europe. It was one of the leading uh, players in the defeat, ultimately, of Napoleonic France in 1815. And well before that and well after that, it was one of the key enforcers, if you will, of the European balance of power. You would talk about the British Empire, you talk about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and in the same breath, you would talk about the Russian Empire. And so clearly it had a seat at the table, just as today it's one of the permanent five members of the UN Securities Council. But to your point, in that sense, it was in a geopolitical sense, it was a, in our parlance today, maybe a developed market or a developed player. But from an economic standpoint, it was certainly what we would think of today as an emerging market. It had catching up to do in terms of per capita income, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of human capital. Ultimately, Russia, remember, was a society that engaged in serfdom well into the 19th century, with serfdom only going away, at least in legal form, in 1861. So a lot of the economic development that was happening was a reflection of attempts to reform and catch up with the geopolitical rivals in the West. So we've talked about the external factors, so all these other players going wrong. Can, can we now bring this to the policy going on within Russia at, at this point? So kind of this, well, in the lead up to this, this kind of bursting of the, of the Russian debt bubble, because there's so much going on here with the policy as well. So first of all, can I get you just to clarify, the title of your book is Bankers and Bolsheviks. Who were the Bolsheviks? You know, kind of what's that story? So the Bolsheviks were a kind of a marginal faction of the Russian Social Democratic Party. And it was for much of the time in that I'm speaking about in my book considered kind of a fringe faction of leftist, ultra leftist revolutionaries. But as the book goes on, they clearly start to become more and more significant central players in the drama of Russian politics, ultimately engaging in this essentially a coup d'etat in uh, late 1917, which sees the communist regime come to power. This would be under Vladimir Lenin. Exactly. And so the book begins well before that. It begins in the 1890s, and it focuses in particular on the finance minister, Sergei Vite, who was a man, again, many emerging market investors today would think of as a technocratic finance minister that we've seen, one of these so-called Chicago boys that percolate through the ministries of finance of various Latin American or other developing countries. And the conventional history is that he's the one who really unleashed this wave of industrial policy in Russia and, you know, brought Russia onto the gold standard in 1897 and really unleashed this borrowing binge. I argue that actually these policies had deeper roots that a lot of with his predecessors were the ones that laid the foundations for this. But ultimately what you witness, whichever take you take, is kind of a tension in Russian politics between technocratic, technically competent, oftentimes uh, plugged into the West uh, in certainly technocratic matters, bureaucratic elite, as well as this more kind of reactionary and 
unvarnished autocratic elite centered around the czar and his court. And there was this tension, again, as as we've seen in other emerging markets and arguably even in Russia today, between the sort of autocratic, some would say xenophobic, some would say reactionary part of the Russian policymaking elite and a more technocratic developmental state. And this tension sort of plays out over the closing decades of the Tsarist regime as the Bolsheviks are making their advances politically. So let's come on to the actual, the default of this debt. So we've kind of laid the foundation of where it came from, what was happening in the world around it. But if we actually come on to the the default, because you'll know this, you work in the emerging market space an awful lot, that you get certain countries who are brilliant payers of debt, and you get others which have a reputation of, well, not always paying when you want them to. But up until this point, Russia had been pretty good, and they, they didn't really have a reputation of defaulting. I don't think they had previously. But all of a sudden, this wasn't just a small default, this was huge. What was going on there? Why did they default? It's a long story, um, but uh, basically what had happened was you'd had successive issues from the Russian state of sovereign bonds that were taken up uh, with increasing enthusiasm uh, by Western bondholders. And, you know, these were associated with Russia's industrial drive. First, they were raising capital abroad to build up their reserve stockpile to be able to embrace the gold standard, which they thought would facilitate even more capital inflows because adopting the gold standard was a signal to global markets that, hey, we're serious about maintaining a tight economic shift. So it just made it more attractive to foreign investors. Exactly, exactly. And then obviously, you know, the gold standard involves certain policy restraints. If you're serious about maintaining convertibility to gold, you can't be doing all sorts of crazy monetary and fiscal policies. And so that over time build this credibility of Russia as a good credit, uh, if you will, in the global market. And then there was this memory, to your point, that they hadn't had a, a history of kind of serial default. In fact, in the Crimean War, which is a war that Russia fought against many Western powers, despite creditors being from enemy countries, Russia paid those bonds on time, paid the interest on those bonds on time. And so there was a very strong conviction amongst broad swaths of the financial elite globally that, uh, hey, these guys are through thick and thin. They will pay come what may. So it's a safe pair of hands. Now, you had that kind of tension between the autocratic part of the Russian elite and this technocratic part. And what the bonds were being issued for was ultimately bring some sort of macroeconomic stability to Russia, create the basis for an industrial boom in Russia, and that was bearing fruit. There was this tension because while a lot of these policies were seen as positive reformist steps and market-oriented in some way, shape, or form, they were all happening in the context of an absolute autocracy. Unlike Britain, Russia didn't have a constitutional monarchy. And they had this uh, kind of first wave of revolution in 1905, when the Tsar, in the so-called October Manifesto, essentially created the framework for a constitutional monarchy and a, a Duma, a Russian parliament. But he very quickly thereafter started going back on those promises. And so from about 1904, 1905 through to 1917, you have this real tension where you have foreign investors, including from France, which 
let's not forget, is a revolutionary republic, which in no uncertain terms rejected autocracy, but was allied because of a mutual fear of Germany with the czarist autocratic empire. So they made sort of strange bedfellows. French investors are leading the charge into the Russian market. The Russian finance ministry is encouraging that and trying to issue more debt. And they're doing this all in the context of a very autocratic czar who refuses any real attempt at reform. And that's incensing this growing urban democratic constituency in Russian cities. I mean, these are people that are, you know, the intelligentsia and in any way plugged into international kind of knowledge networks and whatnot and are increasingly incensed by the lack of reform in Russia, as well as an urban lower class of, of peasants that are moving to the cities and are starting to see their prospects improve and they're starting to demand more and more. And the czarist regime is, is really not delivering anything in terms of democratic opening. And so the very fact that this financial policy became such a key part of Russian government overall policy, because this is the pre-welfare state global political economy when countries didn't have national health service or national insurance. They just basically collected a minimal amount of tax to finance a very minimal amount of state spending, much of it military in nature. And so there was real growing discontent with, hey, all these loans are being raised in the name of the Russian people by the Russian state without those same people having any representation. So in 1905, that comes to a head. And even relatively reasonable centrist parties are taking issue with these loans. And so ultimately, the loans kind of take on this illegitimate kind of veneer in the Russian political discourse, which comes to a head in 1917. And what's the state of the population at this point? Because I know that kind of as you come into, certainly once Lenin comes into power later on, there's mass famine, you know, there's kind of a agriculture sees massive decline as they start to go kind of down centrally planned systems and go for industrial kind of progress. Was the similar thing kind of going on here? Or was it slightly different before that? It was slightly different before. So uh, one of the opening scenes in my book relates to a famine that happened in the late 19th century, which was a big kind of wake up call for the czarist regime. So you did have famines prior to the communists in Russia. But really, the late 19th century, early 20th century is a period of large amounts of economic booms happening, you know, years and years of economic booms and busts on, along the way, but generally a lot of investment going on, uh, migration from the countryside to these new urban heavy industry zones. And really, you do have these moments where, as is normal, the business cycle turns and you have downturns. Interestingly enough, I make the argument that in about 1913, the economy was probably starting to roll over. And ironically, the war injects kind of this unprecedented amount of fiscal stimulus. And so it kind of pushes off this moment of economic downturn at the same time of elevated political tensions. And so the war kind of initially has this boom, but that, especially once battlefield losses start to materialize, starts to really wear off, I argue, in 1917, and especially in the financial markets, it becomes harder and harder for the Russian state to keep the plate spinning. I can see that. So Hassan, can we bring this forward to today? Because as you said right at the start of this conversation, there are an awful lot of parallels 
there to my mind and from my own research you know we're certainly at a point of we're not quite there of a shift in global order but there are tentative signs we're seeing massive disruption from new innovation which was also going on at this point when we look back at russia so kind of with those parallels what are the lessons we can draw from this you know what's the kind of the application or what are the things we should be taking from this to understand today you know there's there's many one one can draw a few stand out in particular um, the first thing I would say, the first lesson for me is that diversification really matters for countries. Uh, we often talk in investments about diversifying your portfolio, but one of the mistakes that IRU Russia made in the 19th century was not hedging its bets in terms of funding sources. They basically made a huge bet on Paris being the financial center of the world, which was arguably the case for good chunks of the 19th century, but they kind of missed this shift in financial power to first London and certainly to the US. And so that has parallels for today when we think about countries, both in terms of who they borrow from, but as we saw just recently, even with Russia, where they park their reserves. You know, it's a question clearly for a lot of central bankers and finance ministers, you know, should we be borrowing as much as we are in dollars? Should we be keeping our reserves as much as we are in dollars? Now, the temptation for a lot of them may be, oh, we should go to the Chinese markets, uh, both in terms of issuance and in terms of parking our reserves. It's not clear to me that that's necessarily a solution. It's just a reminder that you have to be prepared for abrupt changes in regimes. A second lesson that strikes me as relevant is that investors should be very cognizant of political biases and wishful thinking emanating from those biases in the context of a war. So one of the things that was very clear was that foreign investors during World War I seem more inclined to give Russia the benefit of the doubt than they may have in other circumstances because they felt so invested in the success of Russia in the war and, you know, against Germany. Coming kind of off of that point is a third lesson, which is that not everything can be quantified. And particularly in this age of technological change and, you know, we're venerating coders and, and technologists and whatnot, which is all well and good. But there's a lot of subtle things that happen in emerging markets that you just cannot put a number on. And that doesn't mean that they're not important. And sometimes it's exactly that thing that you cannot quantify that may be the thing that upends your investment. And of course, this is in some ways a plug for history. And I think history is very relevant. But the other lesson that, that comes across to me from looking at the Russian case is that history is not mechanical or rational. It's not like a machine. And I think that's one of the mistakes the investors who did have historical perspective back in 1918 made was they used that example of the Crimean War. And they said, well, Russia paid in the time of the Crimean War. And it's that subtlety of knowing when certain things will continue and when they won't, uh, which is which is very important. I think that's very true. You know, certainly when we're looking at, so I mean, obviously my research is is much more behind innovation cycles, but you get something very similar happen. It, it, certainly in the, in the investment space, is initially when you get a new wave of innovation coming through, firstly, the excitement around that always creates this massive capital frenzy, which comes into a bubble. So you had that with railroads, you had that with telecoms, you had obviously dot-com, I would argue crypto. And then kind of everybody kind of loses its interest in it because they've just got wiped out or ruined by it. But actually, there's still a technological revolution about to occur with some of those things. And I think the same thing you can apply potentially to what you're saying with countries is 
you get these waves of innovation, which obviously dramatically affect the domestic economy. And you can easily cling on to those, believing that the past is a, a brilliant kind of sign of, of the future. I want to bring this all the way round to kind of today. And I, I want to get your opinion on what's the strategy Russia's going with here? Like, why this invasion or this war now? What are some of the factors that you see? Because I see a, a number of them. What do you think is kind of behind this? It's obviously quite a situation that's played out. One of the things that I found helpful in actually navigating the, the, the crisis was adopting that historical perspective and kind of actually literally watching state propaganda. A lot of these speeches that Putin was making that were dismissed in much of the conventional Western press as unhinged rants and irrational, I said, okay, let's actually look at them as a as a historian and what are the claims that he's making and it turned out they weren't very unfamiliar to me because talking to some ultra right wing conspiracy theorists or propagators of ultra right wing ultra nationalist history line narratives in in Russia these are kind of familiar themes this idea that the bolsheviks were an alien force um, that they were what is often unspoken is that a lot of the bolsheviks were non russian minorities they were stalin was a georgian you know there uh, there were a number of jews uh, non slavic uh, minorities and so for Russian nationalists, i.e. Russian chauvinists, this is oftentimes, you know, a symbol that this is not a true Russian regime. This is a foreign, quote unquote, conspiracy. And in this line of thinking, they destroyed the Russian empire and they inflicted a huge crime on, on the Russian people. This is essentially the message that Putin gave in his speech the Sunday before the invasion. And what was interesting to me about that speech was he said specifically that Ukraine's current borders are the product of a quote-unquote crime inflicted on the Russian people by the Bolshevik regime and Vladimir Lenin in particular. And what was particularly interesting to me was within sort of 48 hours of that speech, Russian TV aired a map of Ukraine and then shaded in different parts of that map, attributing those different shaded parts to different Russian leaders. And so the North was attributed as gifts of the Russian czars. The West of Ukraine was attributed as a gift of Stalin. And crucially, the South and the East were shaded in as gifts of Vladimir Lenin. And so when I put two and two together, I said, well, this is kind of your roadmap for how the war is going to progress, i.e., the key Russian aim, the key Kremlin aim seems to be take control of the East and the South. A lot of the media attention initially was focused on Kiev, which was part of the focus of Russian invasion forces. But, you know, kind of my thinking was and is that real focus is the East and the South. And this overlays with a lot of the regions that Putin has talked about as being part of historical Russia, quote unquote. It also is the most economically valuable real estate in the country. You know, you're talking about the real heavy industry belt. And the South, if Russia takes that over, is essentially the entire lifeline that Ukraine has to global markets through the sea. And they've focused on that and they've largely kind of gotten that with the exception of Odessa. Can I come back just to the borders? Because I'm going to embarrass myself on a on my own podcast here with uh, perhaps saying something which isn't true, but you're the person to ask. How did those borders get drawn? Because they seem to kind of not follow any particular pattern. They seem to actually group together people who aren't necessarily even would classify themselves as the same nation. 
Yes. I mean, this is, um, it opens up a really messy can of worms. Uh, the reality is that the territory of the country of Ukraine lay at the intersection of several empires for much of its modern history. I mean, ultimately, the history of Orthodox Christianity in that region basically goes back to sort of 988. And, you know, Kiev plays a very important role in that. And Russian nationalist historians, as well as Ukra well, Ukrainians, obviously, but also many Russians consider sort of Kiev the original city of the civilization. And then you had, you know, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that was controlling parts of modern-day Ukraine at various points in its history. You had the Ottoman Empire, you had the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you had various waves of invaders from the steppe. And so... As in many countries, you know, it, it must be said, it's history is never very clean and precise that there's this group of people that lived here for all time. And, you know, it's the it's the pure sort of thing. And so Putin has certainly played up on that. And a lot of his commentary back in 2014, when he was seizing big chunks of the South and the East back then, was that he was advocating a multi-ethnic, pluralistic Ukraine. He was claiming to defend even Crimean Tatars and whatnot, but it's evolved a lot. And part of the problem with people that try and rewind the clock on today's map in any part of the world is that oftentimes these historical arguments they use to push those redrawings are not undisputed. And oftentimes redrawing that map is a very ugly and bloody process. When were the current borders so of kind of Georgia and Ukraine and Poland, when, when were they actually put in? Was this after the Second World War? There's no kind of simple answer to that, right? Like, you, like take Poland, you mentioned, right? It was partitioned. Diplomatic historians talk about the partitions of Poland in the 18th century. And then in 1939, Hitler and Stalin signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which essentially created a fourth partition of Poland. And that's... Through that partition of Poland, you know, you get the Soviet Union allocated part of what is now Western Ukraine. And so these borders, 1918 is a very important date, 1917, 1918, 1939. You know, if you're looking at other parts, like you can even say 1991, depending on how you look at it. So that's the problem here is that there's no clean starting point where you can say, okay, everyone agrees that and and so the problem is that, you know, in 1991, Soviet Union collapses. In 1994, the Ukrainians and a number of regional powers or global powers signed the 1994 Budapest Agreement, which says Ukraine's current borders will be respected, right? And Russia is a signatory to that. Clearly, you know, that hasn't held. They forgot about that conveniently. Yeah. So I want to come on to, because I've, I've recently seen that you wrote a piece, I think it was for Business Insider which you basically, I'm not sure whether you wrote the piece or you just interviewed for it, but it was, on, it was on the topic of a new class of oligarchs. And I think the thesis was, given kind of the sanctions being imposed and things like that, you saw quite a lot of change going on within the kind of that oligarch system. Is that right? Sure. So I was interviewed for the piece. And basically what was happening at the time, or is happening, is there's a wholesale exit of all sorts of Western companies from Russia. Some of them are doing it because they're forced to by sanctions, but it must be said a lot of them are just 
leaving of their own will, not wanting to be associated anymore with Russia. Now, this creates some very practical reality issues, right? Which is what happens to those assets? What happens to the thousands of people that are employed by these companies? How does that get resolved? It's one thing to say you want to leave the country, but what then happens on day two after your departure? In one sense, it's a reasonable question and it's a reasonable situation to need to resolve. And the Kremlin very early on in this conflict said that, listen, anyone, businesses and investors that leave the country in an effort to facilitate an orderly transition, basically the Russian state will arrange for some sort of caretaker administration of these industrial assets and facilitate a sale of these assets to new ownership in a transparent process. Now, as someone who's kind of reflected a lot on transition period of the 90s from communist rule to free market capitalism, what happened back then was there were a number of state-owned enterprises that were essentially sold off in what is often seen or, or widely seen as rigged auctions to a group of favored industrialists who ended up becoming the oligarchs. They bought these prime assets for a song. And so, you know, with that in mind, that's clearly a risk that I worry about in this iteration of... Yeah, kind of a, a new turning of that. Exactly, exactly. So to finish off, I want to bring this on to climate change because Russia is certainly a landmass which is dramatically affected by this. You know, we've seen loads of stuff on the permafrost retreating, regions actually seeing massive craters, seeing cities have massive tears come through it, buildings fall down, all this kind of stuff. But the other change going on, which I've seen, is when you start looking at the taxation of fossil fuels, that's a massive headache to the Russian economy. Certainly the cross-border adjustment taxation that the EU is proposing to do, or was, they'll probably just switch off most of the gas now. So there seems to be loads of things going on in there. With your experience, I mean, you've got so much experience across multiple assets as well as macroeconomics. What are some of the things that you see going on in that space from a kind of a climate change point of view? Right. So you're absolutely right. The carbon border adjustment mechanism that the EU has been talking about was a serious concern for Russia pre Ukraine crisis, right? So kind of, let's say, summer of last year, this was a very topical issue. The sense that I get is that for both the Russians and the EU, a lot of this climate policy stuff has taken a serious backseat to the imperatives of the current crisis. So right now, the EU's problem is, the immediate problem is, how does it get enough energy? They're trying to ditch Russian gas and oil, not for green reasons, but because of political imperatives. But then they recognize, I think, that they need to find it from somewhere else. And it's not clear that there's a quick and easy fix to that. Uh, well, absolutely, because it takes years for the infrastructure behind, let's say, a liquid natural gas plant. And it should be said on top of this that we've heard a lot of big promises and brave talk from European capitals about this for the last eight years. I mean, back in 2014, I distinctly remember all sorts of European politicians talking about how they're going to wean themselves off Russian gas. And in eight years, we haven't seen really any LNG uh, regasification terminals go up in Germany. And, you know, we haven't seen speed limits on the Autobahn. I mean, these are, these are relatively easy, low-cost things that, that haven't been done. So, there's that aspect. The other thing that's very important here is that Russia, it's difficult for me to see how the world actually does a real transition to a greener world without Russia. Because as much as Russia pumps a lot of oil 
They have all these minerals and metals that are absolutely essential to the green supply chain. So how, for example, you manage a green transition without any role for, say, Norilsk Nickel, uh, which is one of the largest palladium and nickel producers in the world, is kind of beyond me. And that's something that it's going to be a really difficult, I think, circle for policymakers in the West to square that. How do you punish the Kremlin, which you need to do from a geopolitical standpoint? I don't think that's much in debate, but at the same time, get what you need to save uh, the planet. That is a, a really good point. The other thing I want to bring up here, and something I've never really kind of understood, actually, I mean, Russia has the landmass to potentially churn out such incredible amounts of renewable energy. They have hydro, or they certainly could tap into it. They certainly have the landmass for wind and solar and everything else, but they never seem to have actually developed that at all. Is that an oversight or is it just a reliance on the hydrocarbon products that they have? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And on top of that, I would even add that they have uh, had for decades first-rate scientists, right? I mean, the Soviet Union was one of the leading scientific research uh, centers of the world. And that university infrastructure, while it has eroded on the margins, has not gone away entirely. I think there is a real issue with a natural resources curse that's played out in Russia. You know, we it's talked about as Dutch disease, but basically the idea is that you're getting so much easy money from oil that there's no incentive for people to stake themselves out in, in other areas. You know, when I was in Russia, I often saw attempts at creating like a Russian Silicon Valley and, you know, these kind of second and third wave of, of industries. But I think it kind of gets to one of the problems emerging markets, not just Russia, but really uh, across the world face, which is that that model of technological and economic development that the US, Britain, a few other countries have developed is very, very difficult to replicate. I mean, Silicon Valley is not something that was created by government diktat and no amount of state-owned enterprises. It's a very complicated thing. I don't have a, a clear answer myself, but we've seen, I've, I've seen it in, in the former Soviet Union, not just in Russia, attempts by by the state to create from the top down, an answer to Silicon Valley or an answer to the city of London or Wall Street. And they all seem to fall flat on their faces. And uh, there's something about the institutional fabric of some of these developed market economies that is just very difficult to replicate. And some would argue that it's very difficult to replicate absent some degree of political reform that it seems the Russian uh, state in particular has been unwilling to engage in. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, coming back to that, when you're looking at innovation, it'd be lovely to think, I mean, well, any government would like to think that you just put some money in a pot and hey, presto, you get incredible inventions and technology coming out of it. But as you say, that's not exactly how it works. And one of the areas that more centrally planned, bigger government economies have is, of course, to get creativity, you have to also embrace failure. And personally, that's the missing link of when it's government driven, you see them backing a potential technology, but a free market capitalist society doesn't just test one idea, it tests thousands. And then eventually the one which proves itself is taken forward. I think that's always been the issue, hasn't it? You know, you can look at the Soviet Union and that centrally planned economy, and it essentially rotted from the inside out. They tried to bring in a kind of free market dynamics by giving them incentives 
But as you say, none of these really take hold. You need that competition. I think that's a very, very important point that there's that aspect of failure and being okay to fail and encouraging quick failure and quick recovery from that failure versus when you have that top-down structure, it's a lot of it is not just not being allowed to fail, but pretending that things are not failing when they actually are. And we see that you're talking very rightly so about the economic and the technological sphere, but one could even make that argument about the way the war is being fought. There have been questions about what is the nature of feedback mechanism that's operating in Russian military circles, and it's not clear that it's as effective as perhaps it could be operating in the Ukrainian side. So, Hassan, thank you so much for such a great conversation. I've learned tons. So no, thank you. Thank you so much. If people want to find out more about your work and what you do, is there a place they can find out more about you and your work? Yeah. So they can pick up a copy of my book, Bankers and Bolsheviks, or uh, go to my website, hassanmalik.net. Superb. No, Hassan, thank you. Honestly, thank you so much for uh, sharing your expertise and your time. Thanks. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.